The Hamlet Podcast, episode 54. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanretty. We are smack in the middle of this strange but vital England scene, with Malcolm confiding all his evils to Macduff. Poor Macduff has just had an earful, hearing all the truly wicked aspects of Malcolm's character. Surely it must feel quite galling to have travelled from Scotland, leaving, as we are so often reminded, his wife and children without his protection, and then to be met not by a potential king, but by a baddie worthy of any superhero franchise. Macduff had just about managed to exclaim, Oh, Scotland, Scotland, at the point we finished last time. It's a sign of his priorities that it's his country he worries about first and foremost. Malcolm, whatever his reasons for this graphic confession, now wants a little bit more of a response. He asks, If such a one be fit to govern, speak. I am as I have spoken. It must be a test. He's asking if Macduff thinks him worthy of the Scottish throne, given all these flaws he seems to celebrate rather than hiding. Macduff replies at length. Fit to govern? No, not to live. O nation miserable, with an untitled tyrant bloody sceptred, when shalt thou see thy wholesome days again? Since that the truest issue of thy throne by his own interdiction stands accursed, and does blaspheme his breed. Thy royal father was a most sainted king. The queen that bore thee, oftener upon her knees than on her feet, died every day she lived. Fare thee well. These evils thou repeatst upon thyself have banished me from Scotland. O my breast, thy hope ends here. Malcolm was wondering if Macduff felt he should pursue the crown, given his lack of those king-becoming graces, whether he was still fit to govern. Macduff, in his shock, says he's not even fit to live. He feels so sorry for Scotland, his nation miserable, already saddled with a tyrant who has no particular right to the throne. He calls Macbeth untitled. He doesn't have a hereditary claim to the throne. He's not entitled to it. More descriptive still, he manages to point out that Macbeth reached the throne by spilling blood. For once in this play, avoiding a bloody hands image, Shakespeare splatters Macbeth's sceptre with blood instead. O nation miserable, with an untitled tyrant bloody sceptred. Macduff wonders when Scotland might be wholesome again, as in not saddled with a bloody murderer for a king. When shalt thou see thy wholesome days again? It'll be a while, he fears, since the actual heir to the throne has just confessed to an outrageous catalogue of sins, as if trying to give up his claim. Since the truest issue of thy throne by his own interdiction stands accursed, and does blaspheme his breed. Interdiction is another legal term. There's a lot of them in this play and is a kind of restraint imposed on someone incapable of making their own decisions. It's not a million miles from what was imposed on Britney Spears during her famous conservatorship. But no more than in Britney's case, Macduff is noting that it's unusual for Malcolm to perform his own interdiction. The legal term is coupled with curses and blasphemy. 
Shakespeare is weaving in all the ways that Malcolm appears a shockingly bad choice for King, since he'd be breaking the laws of man and those of God. Now Macduff has to mention Duncan, Malcolm's father. It's a fairly easy antithesis. You are bad, your father was good. Not just good, that royal father, but saintly. Macduff calls him a most sainted king. Now, he hasn't quite been canonised in the hour of stage time since the Macbeths killed him, but it's good to remember that Duncan was everything that Macbeth is not. Most unusually now, we get a reference for bonus parental guilt to Malcolm's mother. She, the queen that bore Malcolm, was apparently even more saintly than her husband. She prayed all day, more often on her knees than on her feet, and, in an echo of St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians in the Bible, she died every day she lived. She sounds like a pious medieval woman who lived in prayer and mortification. There's seldom a better way to shame someone than by pointing out what a parent might feel about their behaviour, especially if that parent has died. Macduff pulls no punches here, reminding Malcolm of both his saintly dead parents before saying goodbye. He says that Malcolm's self-confessed evils have banished him from Scotland. If Malcolm is going to be king, Macduff will have to go into exile. Again addressing the hope in his heart, he returns to this image of his hopes dying. Fare thee well. These evils thou repeatst upon thyself have banished me from Scotland. On my breast, thy hope ends here. Poor Macduff. This scene really messes with his emotions. It's a fiendish challenge for the actor playing him, because, as we are about to see, all of this wild information from Malcolm, unlike what's going to come later, is actually untrue. Just before Macduff storms off in this hopeless rage, Malcolm comes clean. Macduff, this noble passion, child of integrity, hath from my soul wiped the black scruples, reconciled my thoughts to thy good truth and honour. Devilish Macbeth, by many of these trains, hath sought to win me into his power, and modest wisdom plucks me from over-credulous haste. But God above deal between thee and me, for even now I put myself to thy direction, and unspeak mine own detraction, here abjure the taints and blames I laid upon myself for strangers to my nature. I am yet unknown to woman never was forsworn, scarcely have coveted what was mine own. At no time broke my faith, would not betray the devil to his fellow, and delight no less in truth than life. My first false speaking was this upon myself. What I am truly is thine and my poor country's to command. Whither, indeed, before thy here approach, old Seward, with ten thousand warlike men, already at a point, was setting forth. Now we'll together, and the chance of goodness be like our warranted quarrel. Why are you silent? This last question, why are you silent, often gets a much-needed laugh in the theatre. Of course Macduff is a bit speechless after a turnaround like this. Malcolm has been testing Macduff. He had some perhaps justified concerns about Macduff's loyalty, especially coming from Macbeth's craven Scotland, and so he's been a bit slippery and messed around with Macduff's opinion of him. 
but Malcolm is now satisfied. He explains that Macduff's noble passion has wiped his dark doubts, his black scruples, from his soul. Macduff's anger, disappointment and passion, all noble, are the product or child of his great integrity. Malcolm's thoughts are now reconciled to Macduff's truth and honour. But you could forgive Macduff for wanting to smack him in the head for all of this. Malcolm explains that Macbeth, devilish Macbeth indeed, had by many tricks attempted to win him over and win him into his power, and it was only his own modest and self-regulating wisdom that saved him. His own wisdom saved him from believing Macbeth for being seduced by his lies, wisdom conquered over credulous haste. The actual devil was renowned for his tricks and for winning people over like this, and is often called the father of lies. You'd likewise need some modest wisdom to pluck you from his grasp. Now, for contrast, Malcolm instead invokes God in heaven. He's picking a side, and so he enlists Macduff. He's hoping it'll be God that deals with the work that lies ahead for them. God above deal between thee and me. He submits to Macduff, saying that now he will put himself in Macduff's hands and be led by him, and that he takes back everything he said before. Even now, I put myself to thy direction and unspeak my own detraction. Macduff is presumably rather wide-eyed at this excited young prince, but Malcolm continues that he rejects all of the sins and foibles with which he had maligned himself. Here abjure the taints and blames I laid upon myself for strangers to my nature. These taints and blames, he says, are strangers to him. He's got no experience of any of these things, and they're totally alien to him. He's a walking innocent, he insists. He has never slept with a woman, despite all that talk of wanting to bed every female in Scotland. He has never told a lie, barely had any interest in his own possessions, never mind the property of anyone else. He has never broken a promise or an oath, and wouldn't even betray one devil to another. And, perhaps most princely of all, he insists that he values the truth as much as his own life. I am yet unknown to woman, never was forsworn, scarcely have coveted what was mine own, at no time broke my faith, would not betray the devil to his fellow, and delight no less in truth than life. If you were going to cross a national border to join arms with a potential new king you wanted to fight for and install on the throne, this is rather more what you'd hope he'd sound like. It's certainly better than the first description that Malcolm gave us. And lest you start to question him, particularly the clearly untrue part about him never having told a lie, Malcolm is ahead of us. He explains that his pack of lies was the first he's ever told, and that, frankly, he is Scotland and Macduff's humble servant. My first false speaking was this upon myself. What I am truly is thine and my poor country's to command. And poor Scotland won't have to fight against Macbeth alone. The trip to England has not been unsuccessful. Malcolm has enlisted to the support of 10,000 warriors led by Old Seward, and they're already on the march towards Scotland. He and Macduff can join them to go and rescue their poor country. Whither, indeed, before thy here approach, Old Seward, with 10,000 warlike men, already at a point, was setting forth. Now we'll together, and the chance of goodness be like our warranted quarrel. 
It's as if we're watching Malcolm talk himself into kingship here. He's shown us his potential wicked side, and then instead goes through his gentle virtues before ending the speech with some of that complimentary language that seems to characterise Scottish nobility. His final words are the hope that their likelihood of success will be as great as their need to fight this battle. The chance of goodness be like our warranted quarrel. It feels like he's grown a foot in stature over the course of the scene, from libertine to leader, and now he wonders why Macduff is speechless. Eventually Macduff does find something to say, and splutters, such welcome and unwelcome things at once, tis hard to reconcile. He's not sure where they stand now, since Malcolm has given a lot of good news so soon after such bad. It is indeed hard to reconcile. I think the great challenge here is finding a performer who can encompass Malcolm's need to test Macduff in a way that is convincing, but then also bring us along in his heroism when he starts telling the truth. We have to want Malcolm to win, so if he seems like a joker or a bully messing with Macduff's head, it gets a little harder to like him. But done well, this can feel electrifying. No less a writer than Verdi knew this very well, and he gives Malcolm an incredible aria in this scene of his opera, Macbeth. While Macduff gathers his reconciled thoughts, a doctor arrives who brings a fascinating snapshot of England at the time of the play during the reign of Edward the Confessor. This is very often cut in performance, but that's obviously not how we do things here. So be sure to tune in next time for it, and I'll speak to you then.